0: Good afternoon. You're on 3CR 855 AM, clearing the air. I am your host, Jacob, taking you through to your three o'clock Sunday afternoon. But before I begin, I just want to start by acknowledging today we are broadcasting from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. I want to pay my respect to elders past, present, and emerging, and extend that respect to any Indigenous listeners who are tuning into the program today. Further to that, I just want to say that queerness and transness has always been around in indigenous cultures throughout the world. Um, and I want to pay my respects and give a special shout out to any queer mob who are listening in today as well. We've got a fantastic show coming up. I've got an hour of premier gender queer content also I wrote. So first up, I'm going to be chatting with Josh Miller and Remy Castan who are two educators that teach sex education in high schools. And we're going to be talking about the importance of queer sex education or inclusive sex education. If you are queer and listening in, you may have had this uh, shared experience that sex education as a queer person in high school was just garbage. I mean, for me personally, it was pretty trash. Um, So it's really refreshing to see that Josh and Remy are bringing in inclusivity and making it better for the younger people in high schools today. So that's first up. Second up, we'll be chatting with Beau Bickmore and Bailey Turner on Taking Up Space, which is a multi-form art exhibit happening at the meat market from April 29th to May the 1st. Now, this is a very special one because it's all about celebrating and championing queer bodies. So the producers have asked a number of queer people to submit love letters to their bodies, and throughout the event, they'll be reading out some love letters. Um, there's going to be a wide variety of performances such as art, uh, burlesque or so I hear, spoken word. So that's going to be a lot of fun. Um, and it was very special sitting down with them and talking about this amazing event. So I'm very excited to bring that to you later on in the show. Lastly, I spoke with Elliot Freeman, who is a PhD candidate conducting some research into queer archiving and inclusive record keeping. So this one is a little bit spicy, I didn't know this, but there are archives or records about convicts having sex with each other. And not just a man and a woman, it's two women. So we're talking about lesbian convict sex, so you have that to look forward to today on Clearing the Air, so stay tuned on 3CR. I'll be right back after this.
1: Trans Family is a not-for-profit organization providing a peer support group for loved ones, including parents, siblings, extended family, and friends of a trans and gender diverse person. Trans Family runs discussion groups in person and online. We offer a safe space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your situation, and provide peer support. We are especially keen to hear from loved ones in regional and rural Victoria. Donations to TransFamily are tax-deductible. For more information, visit transfamily.org.au or look for us on Facebook. TransFamily is a 3CR supporter.
2: Do you love Channel 31? Do you have a favourite program you just can't miss?
3: Or even a favourite Channel 31 personality?
4: If you love your local community TV station, well,
3: there is a way you can help. Head along to c31.org.au
1: and click the big old donate button.
5: Your contribution to your local station will help to keep us on the air. Making more of the quality TV you know and love. Plus.
1: You'll
2: help to make sure our team can continue to provide access, training and education
3: behind the scenes to hundreds of young Victorians.
1: That's c31.org.au.
3: And click on the big donate button. Thank you. A 3CR supporter.
0: You're on 3CR queering the air. Hope everyone's having a lovely Sunday afternoon. For many young LGBTQIA plus people, sex education in high school can be extremely heteronormative and largely irrelevant to their life experiences. And this can lead a lot of them to seeking education elsewhere through unreliable sources such as pornography, which, as we know, is a problematic way for a young person to learn about sex consent and what is normal in a sexual relationship. So I spoke with educators Remy Castan and Josh Miller about inclusive sex education and why we need to be doing more of it. All right, so we're joined by Josh and Remy. Josh, Remy, welcome to the studio. Thanks for coming in.
2: Thank you so much. It's a
6: pleasure to be here.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's a a pleasure to have you in. So you are both sex educators um, in high schools. Um, And we're going to talk a bit about sexual consent and queer sex education. So I'm wondering if we can start off. Remy, do you want to tell us what was your sex education like in high school?
2: Yeah, good question. So basically, I grew up in regional Western Australia. So and I went to a public school. Um, And uh, the sex ed that we had was run all by like the PE teachers, which I'm pretty sure most people in Australia will find that like sex ed is run by like PE or like the health department Um, and there was just, it was pretty dire to be honest. Like a lot of the um, messaging was incorrect. A lot of the information was incorrect. The teachers themselves didn't have the proper training and like didn't actually have the knowledge base to be able to teach what they needed to um and it was pretty problematic because yeah obviously you're getting like PE teachers that just kind of think like oh I've got to do this one unit on sex ed so they don't actually have the expert knowledge or the passion to actually do it in the right way so there was no inclusivity um it was very like abstinence was quite uh taught as like you know, something that is a really great solution. Um, And yeah, I think it left out a lot of like, we obviously we're going to be talking about queer sex ed. There was just really none of that. Um, It might've been like one sentence (laughs) of like, yeah, and there's other things too, but like it was (laughs) just not there. Um, So that was kind of, yeah, my experience with that.
0: Absolutely. It it feels very familiar to my experience as well. Mm. I remember we were taught condom on the banana, And the only ever mention of of gay people was when we were talking about STIs, and they said, "Yeah, gay men have a much higher chance of contracting HIV." And looking back, wasn't a really great impression on uh, queer people. Mm, Totally. So so you both um, work for a company, and you go into schools and you teach queer sex education. So I'm really curious to know what does that look like. What are some of the things you do in a workshop? Yeah. That allows it to be more inclusive
6: yeah well it's not like we go into a school all guns are blazing this is what gay sex is this is how you do it like you know right off the bat um to me a queer inclusive workshop is something that every single student sitting in the audience that we're facilitating to they know that whether they are interested in people who identify as male, people who identify as pe- female, if they're into penises, vaginas, any, you know, combination of genitals or gender identities, that like they are valid and they are fine. Um, it would be unrealistic to think that every class we're going to go into, we're just going to talk about queer sex and how queer people do it, you know logistically, the majority of our students are heterosexual people. But if I can say, you know, three or four comments or three or four facts and statistics about queer people and let every student in the class know that if they are queer, I support them, I understand them and that they're okay. I find that that's like the first step. And then it's like working in pieces of information into every workshop we do. So if we are doing safe sex and STIs as a workshop, for example, a lot of that is going to be talking about like pregnancy, you know, and how to not have a baby. And that is very queer exclusive. But we have to recognize that because unfortunately that's, you know, heterosexual sex, they they have babies unfortunately but if <laughs> <laughs> be them um, but um, you know if we can talk a little bit about prep if we can talk about PEp, if we can talk about dental dams if we can talk about you know all these little things that queer people can do at the same time I find that that's you know much more inclusive
2: yeah. And I would also add it's also in the language that we use so like yeah mm. we might be talking about um, pregnancy but instead of saying for example like this is a for example, like an, uh, a method of contraception that women will use, we'll say, this is a co- method of contraception that people with a vagina can use. And that way, like just using those tiny bits of language, just really help students that, you know, might be, for example, trans in the class, just feel like super comfortable that they're not being grouped into like women, they're being grouped into things that are relevant to their biology, because that's in reality what it is.
6: Mm. And we also, we, we will refer to almost every student by they, them. Mm. And every like um, fictional character we talk about, we refer to as they, them and all of their names are gender neutral. In So, scenarios. so like if we're talking about sexting, right, we're going to be talking about Alex and Max sexting. And one of them have sent a nude to the other person. And, you know, nothing I have just said has indicated any gender, you know, mm. because anyone can send nudes. Anyone can do that. We don't need to put... You know genders or you know, genitals on on these fake
0: scenarios absolutely. It's definitely the little things I think that matter. as you said, you're kind of catering to a mainstream, but it's it's so important to be inclusive of that minority mm. and I must also say I'm a big fan of this this non-binary energy with mm. everyone being gender mm. neutral. <laughs> Damn, get, get me on board with
6: that. <laughs> we, will, like, we will actually have students write to us at the end of a workshop being like, this is the first time someone's ever called me by my correct pronouns mm. because we refer to everyone by they, them. And most students don't even recognize when we're doing it. Mm. But some
0: students will pick up on it and they're really grateful. And that's mm. so heartwarming. Yeah. You know? That's so powerful. Yeah. So how do they normally react, I guess, when you bring up these uh, instances of... Of queer sex or, Mm. you know, talk not in exclusive heterosexual terms. Mm.
2: I feel like they react like pretty well because again, like what we were saying before, it's not like we will say like, okay, now we're going to talk about queer. It's more just like all of the the information that we put forward might be relevant for some students, might not be relevant for others. Mm. Um, And so it's just making sure that all the students have that knowledge regardless of their gender or their sexuality. So in, in reality, the, the students that it's not relevant to them probably don't even realise that we're kind of catering towards queer, queer mm-hmm. sex ed. Um, and so that's kind of what's amazing about it. Because, yeah, you're not going to have students in the class that are making queer students feel uncomfortable and things like that. Um, because, yeah, we are just kind of using that neutral language. Mm. Yeah.
6: I do think that sometimes it can be quite hard as a queer person going into some spaces to run these classes. Um, I'll speak of personal experience. I had a class a few days ago, actually, on Wednesday. um, And all of the students, they just look at you sometimes and they can like, you know, that they can tell that you are queer. And you know that, like, you are the butt of their joke. So, Mm. like, everything I do in front of them, they will chuckle to their friends and they will laugh. And, like, if I make a little dance move, they'll laugh. Or if I say something in a funny voice, they'll laugh. And, you know, I'm standing in front of them, obviously knowing that, like, there's a bit of queer phobia going on between me as their facilitator and them as my students. And, And that can be really hard in the moment to, like, not get self-conscious or in my head about it but I just remember that like everyone's on a journey they're just learning and that you know hopefully five years from now there'll be awesome progressive people who respect everyone but right now they're just in that you know school social environment which is unfortunately really homophobic
0: sometimes. Of course and what a great mindset to have as well everyone's on a journey you know not everyone's going to be totally warm and receptive to an openly queer person coming into their space Mm. and I think we touched on this a little bit earlier about why it's important but I want to ask you again why is it important to have queer inclusive sex education and and as, as an extension of that why isn't it important to have visibly queer people in school environments? Mm. I I think that
2: yeah going back to like my sex ed in school all I was doing while sitting in these classes was like okay like this is just irrelevant for me Mm. um and I'm obviously like happy to learn about that stuff because it's really I think it's really important that we that almost every well I think everyone should learn about all you know sex ed and, and and inclusivity but I think it's super important that you know, students learn things that are relevant to them because yeah, if we're leaving out a whole group of people when we're teaching sex ed, then firstly, they're gonna have heaps of misconceptions about sex. They're gonna turn to other Uh, Sources of information for their sex ed. We know that queer people a lot of the time get that information from pornography, Mm. um, from, you know, sources that might not show a realistic um, expectation of sex. It can create lots of distortions and uh, can create lots of issues. So that's why I reckon it's super important that we are inclusive in sex ed, Um, yeah, because otherwise people are going to turn to those other sources. They're not going to know what to do and it can result in a lot of um, traumatic experiences, which I know a lot of people people in the queer community do
6: experience? I think it's just about seeing yourself, you know? Representation, we know in 2022 how important it is. When you're younger and you're, you're feeling a certain way, if you don't see someone who's older than you, who feels that way, who's successful, who's happy, who is safe and okay, you kind of just spiral a little bit because you feel so out of place. I mean, I know for myself watching Sex Education, the, the TV show, have either of you seen it? Yeah, yeah. Like I, I would cry after episodes of it just because the representation was so good and it was something I didn't get when I was younger. I didn't get to see non-binary people on the screen. I didn't get to see queer relationships. So I think for us walking into a school and, you know, Looking queer, talking about queer things, not being afraid of that. Even if there's one student in the class who's like, "Oh, like, I could do that when I grow up." Like, "Oh my god, like, they're queer and they're okay." Like, to me, that's the biggest success. Even if it's only one. Like, that—that's what I want. Mm. Mm.
0: It's certainly something I wish I had back in in high school. So, yeah, I'm I'm really glad that people are benefiting from it, and I think it's it's so important. And what advice would you give to parents or teachers who are working with young people, trying to educate them on sex and sexual health.
6: Mm. I think if you have a young person, and I'm gonna talk specifically about parents, right? When they have someone who's really, really young, like a toddler, two, three, four years old, this person does not have like a fully formed sexual or gender identity yet. They are still figuring out what the world is. They're still figuring out, you know, what a body is, what other people are, what all these social dynamics are. And I think in general, parents need to step up when it comes to sex ed. I think body safety from such a young age needs to be taught that they can say yes or no to every single person who wants a hug or even a kiss on the cheek or even to hold hands. Kids are so often forced into physical like affection by their family and their aunties and their uncles and their grandparents. Mm. I think it needs to start off with body safety and then it needs to move on to conversations about you can be whatever you want to be when you grow up. If you want to have a boyfriend, that's awesome. If you want to have a girlfriend, that's awesome. If you want to date someone who doesn't identify as either of those things, that's awesome. If you don't want to date anyone at all, that's so fine. Good you for know? you as well. <laughs> like, I just think that like, yeah, and Save good Save yourself you. effort. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I think that from a young age, kids just need to be taught that they have a wide range of options mm. and that any of these options are fine the biggest problem to me when it comes to like queer people and being brought up is when they get just put into every single box their whole life so like you know when they're born they get immediately put in a blue blanket and then they get told that they're a ladies man and they're going to break so many hearts and just from such a young age there's this heteronormative culture i think the first step is breaking that down from a young age being like you can be whatever you want when you grow up and i will love you i will accept you and that is totally fine
4: Mm.
2: and on like the sex ed side of it as well um in terms of like teachers and things like that
6: um just do your research
2: um and find like resources that are already there and available that are known to be good and known to be um i guess reputable and inclusive and don't assume things because yeah teaching like the wrong information or Mm. not being inclusive can be so detrimental and affect uh people's lives so much so it's really important that it's done right
0: mm. couldn't agree more well Remy Josh it's been an absolute pleasure hosting you at 3CR today thank you so much for your time and I think we've all learned a little something about sex ed so I <laughs> appreciate it
6: thank you so much thank you for having us
0: that was Josh Miller and Remy Kasten there doing some fantastic work around inclusive sex education in high schools so I caught up with them earlier today something you may have not know, or maybe you do know about Remy, is that he's actually a musician as well. Um, So I'm going to play one of his songs now. This one is called Flip Me Out. Take a look. So That one was Flip Me Out by Remy Andre, and we just heard an interview with Josh Miller uh, and Remy about the importance of teaching inclusive sex ed here on 3CR Community Radio, and you're listening to Queering the Air with your host slash hostess, Jacob. Um, Up next is a very special segment. It's about... An upcoming multi-form art exhibition called Taking Up Space. And this is produced by Beau Bickmore and Variation 3. And the exhibition is all about championing and celebrating queer bodies. So I caught up with Beau Bickmore and Bailey Turner, who is a participant in the art exhibition. And we had a great chat about why it's so important to love our bodies. Um, And they also read me love letters that they wrote about their bodies which is a a core part of the event as you will discover. So with a lineup of Nam creatives showcasing art, performance and spoken word it's set to be an amazing and empowering event running at the meat market from April 29th to May the 1st. So take a look you're on 3CR.
5: To my body. This is a love letter 25 years in the making. A withheld acceptance. This is all of the appreciation I held back that you deserve to be given in abundance.
0: Queer bodies are often the sites of confusion, self-loathing, exploration, harm, and dysphoria. Society's heteronormative and cisgendered expectations around shape, size, color, or appearance has left many members of our community to have a fractured relationship with their bodies. But there's also joy, liberation, and freedom to be found in being able to embrace who you are, regardless of pressure from outside and from within the queer community. Bo Bickmore and Variation 3's multi form art event, entitled Taking Up Space, will celebrate and centre queer bodies and storytelling, showcasing a lineup of queer creatives
5: in Nam. Hello, my name is Bo Bickmore. I am a queer bookseller, writer and producer uh, currently living in Naam. My role of taking up space is one of the main producers alongside Variation 3.
1: Uh, my name is Bailey Turner. My pronouns are she, her. I'm a proud queer trans woman living on stolen ranchery country. I am a writer, performer, a consent educator. I do burlesque. Uh, Yeah, a whole range of world of things. And I'm uh, one of the contributors to the exhibition. I'm writing a love letter and performing interactive burlesque.
5: (laughs) So Taking Up Space is a multifaceted art exhibit, show and spoken word event, um, bringing together over 35 queer artists, writers, creatives and performers. Um, When coming to Taking Up Space, you can expect A little bit of everything, really. There's performance, there's drag, there's circus and contortion. There'll be spoken word and poetry. There'll be live painting and rope art. It's a little bit of everything and everything is focused on celebrating and championing diverse queer bodies and creative talent. Carl KM will be live painting as well as exhibiting a series of queer portraits. Um, Himboy Rope will be doing live rope art and binding and rope tying. Annoyed will be displaying garments that they have designed. Mara Gallagher will be doing contortion-based performance. Um, Jay Davies will be exhibiting a series of photographs, so will Laura DeVay. Francis Cannon is exhibiting hanging tapestries. Um, And then a range of love letters from everyone who is involved will be exhibited as well, as well as people from the community who have responded to the open call-out who have written love letters as well. And then there'll be live painting by other artists as well it's a mixed bag really there's going to be a bit of everything i
1: hate that we have to talk like this as though we're separate mind from body it is my sincerest wish that we can truly connect to each other
5: What was the inspiration behind this event? So many things really, it's a bit multifaceted. Um, Personally, it comes from always existing as a fat person and then losing weight and seeing shifting treatment in society towards me and my body and realizing that I also pushed myself to take up less space. I couldn't ride a train without trying to make myself smaller, things like that. So that was my personal motivation. And then professionally as well, I think seeing artists constantly push themselves and the financial burden of being an artist and having to buy materials and things like that and then losing money to gallery fees and things as well just means that creatives and queer creatives are so often further set back by the industry and by not being given proper funding or losing funding and taking up space gives 100% of all sales to the artists, all of the artists involved are compensated for being involved, paid for their words and writing. Um, So basically it's just about creating collaborative and community-based events where everyone can support and uplift each other.
0: Bailey, I know you've submitted a love letter, am I correct?
1: You are correct, that is true.
0: And tell us a bit about your love letter and what inspired you to write one.
1: The inspiration really came from going through a lot of a really complicated relationship as most people as most people have with their bodies and then queer people you can sort of tack on even more challenges to overcome when it comes to being in the world existing taking up space for one thing but also existing in an expectation around your standards of beauty your standards of sex appeal and as someone who's gone through a transition so I'm a trans woman then having to go from meeting one set of beauty standards to another and finding that the beauty standards you're moving toward are far more complicated, far more flexible, uh, and, and far more pointed at you. And we are on trans day of visibility was this week. So these things are sort of really highly sensitive. And so writing this letter was about responding to that and trying to overcome what's been a long and complicated relationship of poor eating, uh, low self-esteem body dysmorphia gender dysphoria just a series of challenges and it's that thing where for me the letter was about realizing that your body takes a lot your body takes a lot of crap and and can be treated incredibly poorly by you as a queer person while you're trying to just survive and the things that you do in you know in order to do that and so the love letter really came from a place of love through apology and recognizing that there is an abusive relationship between my you know personality and my per- my personhood and my body and trying to get those things to line up and to become one being again and i do love you it's just that i love you the way i was taught to love and that's the problem That's the wound site. such a
0: powerful act being able to transform what was a very painful process into something physical and tangible on paper. And I'm sure it was a process that was full of a lot of challenges, um, but also a lot of highlights. Do you want to enlighten us, um, both of you, on how the process has been organising this and participating in it?
5: Definitely. The it's been so interesting having feedback from everyone who's involved. Kind of finally sitting down to write themselves a love letter, and then realizing that they've never sat down or made time or space to speak to themselves like that, or to romanticize their bodies, or to speak to them with kindness in the way that we do quite often with people that we know and love. Um, and for writing it myself, it took I think sitting down around ten times to finally be able to actually just speak the words it's so much easier for us to kind of normalize talking to ourselves negatively or without love and yeah the very act of just sitting down and writing this letter so many people responded just saying how appreciative they were of the chance to actually do that because they wouldn't have done it otherwise and yeah I found doing it to myself so healing and it was yeah it just kind of felt like a little blessing and that's what I was hoping to realize on the night of the event as well this kind of incredible honesty and vulnerability and yeah just shared queer experiences that speak to how complicated loving your body is and you know for queer people as well obviously there's so many political social and medical barriers in place that try as hard as they can to make us unable to love ourselves and writing letters like this and speaking like this is an act of resistance in itself Mm -hmm. it's a declaration that we're going to keep fighting and that we deserve to love ourselves, and I think that, yeah, the whole act of writing it and hearing and reading people's responses has just solidified that and amplified how important events like this are, where we actually get to hear lived experiences and stories and words outside of just I guess kind of drinking spaces and social spaces like we need to listen to where we've all come from and learn from that it's, um.
1: I was having this conversation with a few of the other artists involved when we got together for an incredible shoot that um, Bo and the team hosted. And for us, you know, for a lot of us, we do this some semi-regularly, you know, uh, to to self-analyse as a queer act, because that's something that we have forced to do at a lot of an earlier age, which is why we're sort of can be a lot more mature, a lot more self-aware than our, um, you know, cishet counterparts. Uh, so that's not that wasn't sort of a hard part of the process that sort of self-analysis. And for some for a lot of us who are exhibiting self-exposure isn't isn't anything new to us either. We're constantly in the habit of mining our personal experience for the value of other people and for the for the value of kind of expressing off some of the extra. But to realize Bo's vision in particular was something that was challenging us to go and do that further work. Um, and actually dig further for things that we hadn't found before and actually go searching for stuff um, in our psyches that we'd kind of left alone, which is a really wonderful prospect for a lot of us because we're often asked to kind of do the to do the basics for the straight gaze or for the you know a, a, for people who couldn't take how intense it can be as a queer person and a trans person to talk about your body really intimately but we all felt this real responsibility to the beauty of what Bo and the team have created to actually go that extra mile and that's been a really powerful experience for all of us to not take for granted the work that we do more generally.
5: I had breasts where other young boys had hard chests and arson hips that swayed when I walked I had soft rosy cheeks and full lips I was all curves and no straight lines it was beautiful, a fat femme fatale.
0: I always say being queer is kind of like being a performance because you always have to put on a show nice. to mm-hmm. just explain yourself to, to a lot of people. And, Bo, you touched a little bit on before why it was so important to do this in such a hostile climate. I've got a couple of bills being debated in parliament right now that are pretty much questioning whether trans people are worth the same as their cis counterparts. But I want to ask you that question again. Why do you think it's so important that we tell queer stories and and give space for people to express themselves um, in this way?
5: I think one important reason is that we've already lost, you know, so much of queer history from political neglect and allowing so many queer people to die and, you know, the active murdering of trans people and the persecution of queer indigenous bodies things like that that have left you know cultural and historical blind spots in our history and we're here now and you know so much has obviously survived and persisted but I want to make sure that every one of us who is here today is having their story told that they're being heard and that you know anyone looking back on this kind of moment or on this exhibit and what comes from it is able to see a part of themselves reflected or their story reflected I think for so many of us there is that yeah huge level of self-analysis that we do from the age of you know, from childhood and being able to I guess pass on your story or leave your story with other people kind of is leaving behind a piece of yourself for someone else to find and then grow from and see themselves reflected in and this is also exhibit an exhibit about like love and self romanticization and things like that so I think that kind of space is something that we do lack as well like we do have to focus so much on activism and fighting to exist and fighting for our rights and things like that, that there isn't that much of a space carved for us to just love ourselves and speak to ourselves with kindness. So having a platform like this and a a venue like Meat Market and funded by City of Melbourne is just so incredible because it's celebrating queer joy, which it deserves to be celebrated. The importance
1: of this event, you know, on one one degree is that the straights need our help. (laughs) you know, people who haven't had that chance to explore themselves, haven't kind of live in assumed knowledge about their bodies and never actually explore them. You know, um, I think that's why we're drawing more and more allies into our community by the minute and why we're getting accused of gender whispering and why we're being blamed for, you know, a a rise in in non-binary identities and trans identities is because people see the value of this. And it's important that we're celebrating it really actively and going, this is actually, we're leading by example. Um, we should be upheld as the, as the positive example for the rest of the population because we're doing this work and this is a, a sort of crystallising of that. I think it's also really important that, to understand that queer people need their family. We've got so many queer kids now who are coming out into a culture where imposter syndrome is their biggest problem because the barriers that they're encountering to be in a queer community aren't as many as some of us older lot fought through, which we had to be sure. We could never claim queer until we were absolutely sure and we had every argument under, you know, available to us. Um, you know, those things aren't needed in the way they used to be, which means that queer kids need to kind of understand where they're going and where they're headed. And having events like this allow there to be a bit of a lighthouse in the dark of that time where you are most vulnerable in your body, you're most vulnerable in your identity. And I say the same thing goes for queer older people who have kind of come out of community because of the ageism that exists in it and wanting to kind of reconnect. And like Bo said, they're not as comfortable in the club. And if they're not, then where the hell else are they going to meet the people they want to mentor? And how are we going to stay connected to our intergenerational culture of, of queerness. And, you know, I think it's also that queer people need themselves. We do, I mean, the, the list is endless of abuses that we do to our body. Like I mentioned before, you know, and trigger warning here, I think is, is valuable, not just for this interview, but for the event where you're looking at people who have disordered eating and eating disorders. You're looking at people who have, you know, complicated and difficult relationships with alcohol and other illicit drugs they've become addicted to people who are addicted to body modification and th- you know, some of those things are really wonderful and valuable and expressive but can also become uh, a toxic relationship with your body in a way to plaster it up we're talking about people who are engaged in notions of self-harm and suicide ideation uh, people who are pouring chemicals in themselves I'm one of those people I'm you know I'm undergoing hormone replacement therapy I'm filling myself with chemicals on a regular basis. It's all this stuff that we do to our bodies. And it's important that we understand what it is that we're doing we our conscious and we're tr- actively working to heal that relationship so that we don't need to do some of those more harmful
5: things. It is only now that I'm in a place of safety and of community that I have grown and found home, that I am finally able to be grateful to say thank you to this big, fat, beautiful body. I should have told you this years ago, but I want you to know that I love you. I love you, I love you, I love you. If you're
0: interested in heading along to Taking Up Space, it's happening from the 29th of April until the 1st of May, with events running nightly from 6 until 10pm at the Meat Market in North Melbourne. You can buy your tickets online at Eventbrite by typing in taking up space, or you can give them a follow on Instagram at takingup.space for regular updates. You're on 3CR, Queering the Air. I am your host, Jacob. And that was a segment on a new art exhibition called Taking Up Space. It's being produced by Bo Bickmore and Variation 3. And it's happening at the Meat Market on April 29th to May the 1st. And would highly recommend getting yourself a ticket. Some really beautiful sentiments expressed in that interview and and such a beautiful concept. Um, I felt really privileged to be able to watch Bo and Bailey read their love letters. And if you want to participate, if you want to write yourself a love letter to your body, you actually can do that. You've got one day left. So hop onto their Instagram page at takingup.space and head to some of the links in the bios uh, if you want to learn some more details about that. The time is 3.45. We are going to jump to another interview that I did today. This one is about queer and trans history, which as we know is complex, beautiful, uh, but sadly much of it has been left undocumented due to a number of reasons. And in Australia, much of our knowledge on this topic can be found in the Australian Queer Archives at the Pride Centre in St Kilda. So what do we know about LGBTQIA plus people in the past and how can we preserve our culture for the future? I spoke with Elliot Freeman, a PhD candidate researching inclusive record keeping and archiving. So, we are joined by the wonderful Elliot Freeman, who is doing some research about queer inclusive archiving and record keeping, which I have no clue where this is going to go, so I'm very excited. Elliot, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming in.
3: Thank you so much for having me on a a rainy Sunday.
0: On a rainy Sunday, it's an absolute pleasure. So tell us a bit about your research and what actually does record keeping entail?
3: That's the question everyone asks. (laughs) So a very basic answer is that record keeping is about managing information. So... um, uh, record to start with. A record is an information object that is evidence that something happened. So your birth certificate is evidence that you were born and you exist, which is very nice. Um, this recording is evidence that this interview happened. And record keeping is just the process of managing it so that we have this evidence for as long as we need it. It's sort of that simple. Mm. Um, my research focuses on archives, So archives are the records that we've decided have long-term or permanent value. So, you know, archives have things like the letters of kings and queens of the past and parliamentary papers and those sort of big juicy pieces of history that we want to preserve ideally forever. But, of course, queer history is a little bit more complicated than most other histories. It's a little bit more hidden and tricky to find, and so that's sort of what I'm focusing on in my research.
0: I see. So unveiling the secrets of the queer past, if you will.
3: Exactly. We're very mysterious.
0: Yes. Oh, well, it sounds fantastic. So what do we know about queer and trans history in Australia? Are there any notable figures or events or moments that stand out in your research
3: so um we have in Australia as with everywhere a very rich queer history and one I will note that extends back thousands of years queer is not something that was imported with colonization mm. um but of course our archives are you know white Western colonial institutions so they're predominantly the stories that are told through those records In terms of queer history, obviously, you know, in the past, you didn't want to be carrying around a beautifully organised folder of evidence that you were queer. Um, That was a safety concern. So it can be a little bit hard to find concrete proof of queer lives if you don't dig a little deeper. So the Australian Queer Archives, currently in the Pride Centre, um, are a fantastic source of queer history. Come down and volunteer if you're interested. Um, and uh, the collection has records dating back to the 1920s. Um, and then the I know that the National Archives have records dating back even further. So one of my favourite uh, items in the Tasmanian Archives, I believe, is um, an inquiry into female convicts that was done in the early 1840s I want to say maybe 1841 and it has some surprisingly overt mentions of uh, lesbian sex among the female convicts Um, and it's really sort of funny to read the use of obviously sort of quite pejorative language by the investigators versus the slang that the women were using themselves they talk about nailing each other (laughs) Um, And so they're a lot of fun to read.
0: Fabulous. Do you have any other fun stories about convict lesbian sex or anything of the sort?
3: Not specifically convict lesbian sex, but um, another sort of fun records-based anecdote, which is a very cool sentence that I came across, (laughs) was in some research that was done by uh, Alex Bailey that you can find online. I think if you Google their name and... um, Uh, I think it was called Beyond Buggery was the name of the blog post. Thoroughly recommend reading it. That Alex talks about um, the use of the term heinous offence to describe sex between men in the goldfields. And that was used predominantly by the media. But it was also used sarcastically to describe selling ginger beer without a licence so um obviously the two most heinous offenses one can commit oh
0: my god yeah equivalent of each other if you will absolutely (laughs) and i'm curious to know if there's a lot of trans or gender diverse history is there much documented that we know of
3: so that's where things get a little bit harder to find. So in community archives, like the Australian Queer Archives, there is a much richer collection of trans and gender diverse histories, because those are records that are predominantly from the community. So these things have been preserved and protected over time. In an institution like the National Archives, for example, or the Public Record Office of Victoria, these are government institutions. And so the majority of the records we have of any sort of queer person is around policing. Um, A lot of it is around policing. And so it can be hard to pick out particularly trans and gender diverse stories because in the past there was such a conflation of gender and sexuality and then, of course, the language that is used can be really vague and inconsistent. Um, so, for example, so transgender as a modern term wasn't really in use in Australia till the 1990s-ish. So obviously, if you plug that into the National Archive search, not a lot is going to come back. Mm. Um, so you have to really know what you're looking for and sort of records, let's say, for example, you know, pre-1950s. They're going to use terms like, um, you know, dressed as man or woman or masquerading as the other gender. Um, Or there'll be records of people being arrested under sort of code word charges. So things like vagrancy or public indecency. And you have to really read between the lines to pull out a lot of these stories So it isn't just a matter of, you know, like plugging in the search term like on Google and having this history open up before you. It's a really specialised skill set, which means it isn't available to a lot of people. You know, these histories are really hidden behind closed doors and for a variety of reasons.
0: Mm. It sounds like you would really have to put a fine tooth comb through particular words and and really unveil kind of like investigation style just to, to figure out what the history is and what's been happening.
3: Yeah, it's like looking for a needle in a haystack, but you have to know the exact size and make of the needle.
0: (laughs) So you touched a bit on some of the challenges in accessing queer history. We just talked before about uh, the words were quite different. You also mentioned how a lot of it obviously didn't exist because people didn't want to be known as queer or trans. Are there any other challenges or would you like to expand on those ones that you've just spoken about?
3: Yeah, so... So I'm an archivist, that's my, my training and my job, and that's the focus of my research is sort of the, the systems and the processes that make history accessible in terms of record keeping. So because the language is so important both to how we access records and also to the queer community generally, it sort of creates this sort of perfect storm of trickiness. Mm. Um, obviously we don't want to be assigning modern terms to people in the past because we can't know how they would have identified and they would have understood sexuality and gender so differently to us but at the same time we don't want to erase those queer histories and we want to make them findable for people today so we're sort of still trying to find our path to walk that middle line and respectfully and compassionately provide access to these histories so that we can sort of see ourselves in the past and I think that's really important to a lot of queer people and speaking to myself I find a lot of joy in seeing stories of people like me throughout history and not just today
0: Mm, I can imagine it it's such a special thing to think that people like us existed back then
3: (laughs) exactly and
0: we're so lucky that that we exist today um and not in the past so I think we can be very thankful for that as well So how do we record our history in contemporary times and what are some of the lessons that we can learn about being more inclusive of LGBTQIA plus folks?
3: So um, I will start by saying that issues around sort of documenting queer lives today aren't just issues for today. They're issues for 100, 200, 300, 400 years in the future. If you keep any record long enough, it will become an archive. And so we want to make sure we're not only um, creating record-keeping practices that are respectful and inclusive today, but also will be in the future. People have a right to not only see themselves in history, but to be themselves in history and to be seen how they want to be seen long after they're gone. So um, things like uh, the most recent census, I'm sure a lot Mm. of people will remember, and there were a lot of issues around how... Um, gender and sexuality were represented in the census and if we think about you know in 99 years time when those census records are opened up for public access we will have lost a lot of those you know most basic records of queer existence and they'll no longer be available for us to to access and see ourselves Um, there's other things like you know I'm sure everyone's filled out a form and ticked Male or female, or Mr. Miss, Mrs. Um, a similar thing. It's such a simple checkbox, but it can have such profound consequences down the line. If anyone's ever done a like, research their family history, most of what you'll find is the most barebone facts a place, a date, a name. And if that's all you have, these minor details really matter. Because you aren't going to be able necessarily to hear someone speak in a video or in a letter or whatever it is, you're relying on those bare bone facts. So we need to make sure we capture those accurately and respectfully and inclusively and allow people to have agency and pride in how they can represent themselves in information and not simply be represented by other people.
0: I think it's such a wonderful and important task that you've endeavoured to pursue. So my hat goes off to you, Elliot. Thank you so much for coming in today and sharing all of your work and all of your insights. It's been really interesting.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Some really fascinating insights there from Elliot Freeman about the complexities and challenges of documenting queer and trans history. Well, that's all we have time for today on Queering the Air. Thank you so much for joining us. My name is Jacob and up next is Salaam Radio Show.